0: Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 21. In Pimlico stood the Buddhist monastery that Velvine intended visiting. He landed in the hairy gardens of St. George's Square, then made his way on foot to Lupus Street, where the monastery stood an Oriental wooden oddity amongst the pale stone and sash windows of surrounding buildings. Velvin knew nothing about Eastern religion. He fooled himself into thinking he was learned about the Oriental world. But, as Marx and others had pointed out, that was because he gathered around the empire, serving his king and emperor. True knowledge, he was beginning to learn, arrived in the mind on different vehicles. So it was that he went into the temple with timidity, almost anxiety, thinking, as he peered up at paintings and tapestries, that he was a charlatan indeed, coming here to ask questions. In a distant corner stood a gold-covered statue of the figure he assumed must be Buddha, smiling, his hair like a multitude of individually tied locks, one hand raised palm out, a monk shaven-headed and wearing a green robe, approached him. Can I help you? Velvine laughed. (laughs) Well, yes, but I have a strange question to ask. You may ask me. Well, you see, the thing is, I don't know much about you types, but I thought you might be able to help me to discover, yes, what love is, eh? The monk nodded. I am asked this often, he said. Love is the law of the wheel of becoming. Is it now? All life is one and compassion is the directive that motivates it. If you are compassionate, you feel for all forms of life. But compassion is no mere attribute. It is the directive of directives. Everlasting love eternal. Yes, Belvin said lost already. It is written in the Metta Sutta for the novice Buddhist. As a mother, even at the risk of her own life, protects her son, her only son, so let him cultivate love without measure towards all beings. Let him cultivate toward the whole world, above, below, around, and everywhere, a heart unmixed with enmity. Let a man maintain this mindfulness for all his waking hours whether he be standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. Velveen nodded. This was already far too difficult for him. The monk continued, Or perhaps as it is written in the Vitaka, all the means that can be used as basis for right action are not worth the sixteenth part of the emancipation of the heart through love. This takes all others up into itself, outshining them in glory. Just as whatsoever stars there be, their radiance avails not the sixteenth part of the radiance of the moon, just as the sun, mounting up into a clear and cloudless sky, overwhelms all darkness in the realms of space. My good man, Velvine interrupted, do you have this written down somewhere? Because I've not a hope in hell of remembering it. The monk paused, then said, Love is a virtue we cultivate for the service of mankind. To feel love, your heartbeat must become the heartbeat of the universe. Your consciousness coincident with all life that lives. We call love one of the four sublime states of consciousness. But Velvine was not listening. Something the monk had said chimed in his memory. A virtue we cultivate for the service of mankind. What was it his brother had said so many years ago now? No one hath any greater love than that of a man for his country. Yes, of course, the highest calling, the highest love, was that of a man for his country, for his king and emperor, and he, a member of the Suicide Club, was ideally placed to experience and comprehend that love. He raised his hand, interrupting the monk and saying, "'Thank you for helping me, but I've heard enough now. Goodbye,' he turned and hurried out of the temple, returning to the Machinora, where, with a hop of delight, he jumped in. "'Why,' he told the clay figure, "'I believe I've found my answer at last, "'and, rather handily, it chimes in with what I already do.' so there is no need to undertake much work or learn anything religious. Tallyho, I am flying off to sign up for the nearest war. The figure, it seemed to him, turned its head, and he thought he heard a distant voice, a voice that for a fraction of a moment he recognised. But then the will-o'-the-wisp was gone. What's that, eh? he said. In war I won't find love. Silence. But he was sure he'd heard a voice saying those words, so he turned round and called out, Hello? Anybody there? Lupus Street lay quiet, hairy, empty. He shrugged and ignited the heater As evening turned to night in Windsor, Cornucope and his companions stood deep in shadow beneath the high stone walls of the royal castle. Two flags flapped in pale moonlight upon the same flagpole, the royal standard of the king and the Teutonic device of Queen Alberta. "'They are both in residence,' Yegman observed. "'Yes, yes, well done,' Cornucope replied, with no little sarcasm. "'Have you discovered your secret entrance yet?' I am searching for it right now. Cornucope found himself more irritated with Yegman than he ever had been before. And he smelled a rat. A big rat. A rat that had appeared because of a lack of mental analysis in the chateau and an excess of suspicious behaviour afterwards. Why Zarina, a delightful creature in comparison, kept his company was anybody's guess. ''Why are you wearing spectacles?'' he asked. ''You never have before.'' ''These, sir, are optically expanded spectacles, invented by Röntgen of the Camden Town Institute.'' ''What? You know him?'' Now Yegman seemed annoyed. Mm, ''A little? Is that a crime?'' ''Half of London knows Röntgen, if only for his madcap inventions.'' The cathode ray velocipede, photogram emulsion, octopus cups I know what the man has invented, Cornucope interrupted. Well, these spectacles work on different optical wavelengths, allowing me to see beneath the stone. Does that explanation satisfy you? Oh, find the secret entrance and be done with it. The guards will see us and become suspicious if we remain here much longer. Yegman said nothing more, taking the spectacle aerials in his hands, vibrating them, then moving his head from side to side, like a snake hypnotising prey. Then he stopped moving. I've got it. He took the spectacles off and leaned towards the wall, where, like a criminal at a safe, he bent down and placed his ear to the stone. Cornucope, one yard away, watched. When Yegman stood up again, Cornucope saw a greasy mark on the stone, lit by the moon, the ghostly impression of an ear. Yegman waved Cornucope away, then pressed the stone. It moved backwards, revealing a small opening. Cornucope allowed Zarina to move forwards, then whispered to East Asia, ''I do not like this. It's all too convenient.'' Why on earth would this castle have a secret tunnel in such a place? Eustacia moved forward to the wall, running her fingers along the stone edges. It's been recently made, she said. Look, fresh stone revealed. Quickly, inside, Cornucope whispered back. Or they will suspect us. They are up to no good she replied, as she ducked down to enter the tunnel Yegman's secret door had revealed. The tunnel was fifty yards long and ended at a wall of damp brick on which a ladder was affixed. This Yegman climbed, his automatic candle gripped between his teeth, whereupon, at the top, he grunted, groaned, then managed to free a manhole cover. A minute later, they all stood inside a hut. ''Do you know where we are?'' Cornucope asked. Eustacia pinched him hard. She shook her head. ''What do you mean?'' Yegman asked. ''Nothing,'' Cornucope replied. Yegman raised his automatic candle and surveyed the hut, which was filled with garden implements. ''It seems to be a place of horticulture,'' he said. "'What's your plan now?' Eustacia asked. "'I need to investigate Struckett's claim about the ringlets of German hair. "'I'll have to find a way into the domestic quarters.' "'On your own?' Cornucope asked. "'Yes.' "'Never, sir. I will go with you. "'A man of the Suicide Club will be required.' "'You'll stay here.' Estatia interrupted.' I'll go with you, Yegman. It's not safe on your own. We need to work in pairs or as a team. Very well, Yegman replied. They departed the hut a minute later, entering dark night. The moon now lost behind cloud, Cornucope sighed and sat back on a wicker chair. Zarina pulled a second chair up to his, so near that he could smell her perfume. She said, I cannot be thanking you enough, Cornucope, for rescuing me from the cooking bowl of the savages. It was nothing, dear lady, but you are so strong and dashing. Before he could reply, she launched herself at him, kissing him with continental passion, and Cornucope, much to his surprise, found himself responding. He realised he liked this. He liked the woman. But... What was this infatuation? Was it some mystical connection, real and full of hope? Or was it just a release from the boredom of his marriage? When they parted for her, he said, <laughs> I say, my dear, she placed a finger on his lips. Do not be saying anything. I have longed, longed, Cornucope, for the touch of a man like you are a man. In my country, the men are weak and trivial. Yes. Where is your country exactly? She seemed not to hear him. I love you, Cornucope, and I have been in the loving with you since the day we met. Is that such a crime, a man and a woman there in the meeting place? And it is random. Why should we not follow our passions? It's... Not quite how we bred. Oh, my Troika, kiss my lips once more. Then she was upon him again, and he did not resist. And after a short while, they played Mongoose the Hamadriad. Yegman and Eustacia returned half an hour later. Yegman said, We've found access to the public and private sections of the castle. There are not many people here at the moment. It's a social world, But we're not dressed for such occasions, Cornucope pointed out. Yegman nodded, for once at a loss. We're not entirely inappropriately dressed, he mused, looking everybody up and down. If you brush the mud off your trousers and I clean my frock coat, perhaps we could pass muster? Eustacia fumbled inside her muted crocodile handbag. I've got a comb, she said, and some pink face powder for myself and Zarina. In the dim light of the hut, they preened themselves as best they could, then departed, making for the driveway along which visitors arrived. Yegman led them to the rear of a kitchen block, the end of which had a low-level window in the French style. To Cornucope's consternation, the lock took Yegman... Ten seconds to break. He whispered to Eustacia. Prepare to make a run for it, dearest one? This man is up to no good. She nodded. In the kitchen all was quiet, but along the nearest corridor they heard the chatter of voices, clinking glasses, and the sound of a chamber orchestra playing the green Danube. Yagman led the way, alert, his hands in his pockets. Yegman surveyed the scene from behind a thick curtain. A butler and a valet walked by, but neither paid them any attention. Cornucope began to fret. Though he wanted to know what terrible Teutonic plot was being enacted within the castle walls, the ease of Yegman's approach and his dastardly confidence was quite a trial, even for the man of the suicide club. This was a place of royalty after all. This was the home of the king. Yagman led them along another series of corridors to the ballroom, where, in the distance, Cornucope saw the king and queen. Three hundred people at least filled the chamber, and the sound of music and excited chatter was loud. Yagman gestured to a side chamber in which musical instruments lay. What next? Cornucope asked, when all four of them stood inside. Yegman pulled a pig revolver from his pocket, pointed it at Cornucope, and said, "'This!' Cornucope and Eustacia stumbled backwards. "'What are you doing?' Cornucop said. "'Are you a madman?' "'Didn't you wonder why I hold you all the way here?' Yegman replied. "'Hold? We were sent on this mission by Lord Bland—be quiet!' You'll be knowing what I say now, and I have definite plans for you, suicidal plans. Then Serena laughed, and Cornucope had an awful vision of her, a different woman, dangerous unknown. What black arts had he fallen for? Had he really thought her advances to be sincere? Yagman continued. This... Is Princess Zarina Natalia Romanov of the Rossio royal family, a relation of King Victorian, no less. But King Victorian is married at the moment, and that places an obstacle in the Russian path. So we shall remove Queen Alberta. Remove? You murderous fiend. Some will say that, others will applaud us. Zarina, you see, is a babushka. With all the feminine skills such a position entails, with Alberta out of the way, and with her being related to the king, it will not be long before he succumbs to her charms. And then there will be a second mariage, and the king will be in Russia's hands. At last, Cornucope understood the nature of Zarina's black arts. She had played him for a fool. You cannot succeed here, he told Yegman. You will be captured. The place is too crowded even for you to escape. You don't understand, Yegman replied. I won't be the murderer. You will be. That is why you are here. But, but, uh, but... Uh... Cornelius is one of my men. Alas, he was thrown out of the castle when he got too close, but he saw just enough to get messages out, which we eventually intercepted. And this is why Lord Blandhubble took us on. We fooled him also, you see. Cornucope nodded. I see perfectly well, he said. Your plan is against the Kaiser, not the King. Yegman grinned. You've got the wit, at least, to see that much, he said. You Britishers are fading. The Russian plan is to halt Teutonic world dominance, and to do this we need the king in our hands. At the moment he's far too Kaiserish. Cornucope felt fear chill his skin. He trembled. I will not undertake your plan, he said. Nothing could induce me to murder. You will, because I will kill your wife if you don't. Cornucope quailed. At last he said, What method, then, do you have awaiting me? A small, motion-sensitive bomb disguised as a posy of flowers, which you will carry to the Queen. But this bomb will not be under your control. I will control it, and I will make it leap towards her when the moment is right. So do not think you have any way out. And remember, if you fail, if you run, if you scream for help, Estacia is dead. Is that what you want, Cornucop Weatherby? No. Neither do I. I admire the people of Indu. It would be such a waste. But what of me? Cornucope wailed. What of you? Don't you now see the difference between you oafs in your so-called suicide club and me? I'm an operative of the Russian Secret Service, a real man. One who influences the world, one in tune with modern times, one who shapes its history. You're a silly old duffer with grey hair. I scorn you, but I'll use you nonetheless. Cornucope sighed. He wondered how much time he had left. Then, give me one last request, he said. I should like to smoke a final cigarola. Yegman returned his pig nose to the depth of his pockets. Very well, I'm not a monster after all. Cornucope took his cig box from his pocket and withdrew a slim cigarola, which he lit with a vesta. History! ''We'll be the judge of that,'' he replied. He puffed at the cigarola and the pungent fumes began to circulate around the musical instrument room. Yegman said, ''You Britishers always smoke the filthiest types, don't you? ''In Russia, we smoke mild cigarettes.'' ''In Russia,'' Cornico pointed out, ''you still allow slavery, ''which our Mr. Wilberforcer abolished some time ago.'' A serf is not a slave, Yegman replied. Besides, you perverted Britishers love to be whipped by the lower classes. It is your vice, la vice anglais, as the French call it. We call it the French vice, Cornucope replied. Which it is, and so your point is nugatory. Hurry up and finish that wretched cigarola. You surely have no concerns, Cornucope said in the smoothest tones. This is the last thing I will ever do. Just finish it. Then, as Yegman spoke, there came a noise at the door and three men strode into the room. At once Cornucope leapt aside and shouted, Get him! Disarm him! He's a Russian spy and the Russian woman! Yegman screeched and grabbed Zerina's handbag, but it was too late for him to take the posy of flowers out, still less to retrieve his pig-nosed revolver. The men, who Cornucope recognised as the guardians of the castle, grabbed Yegman, Zarina and Cornucope. Cornucope, faint with relief, gasped. I am Cornucope Weatherby of the Suicide Club here on Vital Government Business. Fetch the police! That man is Yegman Spiv, a Russian spy. And that is Princess Zarina Natalia Romanov. Hurry! Hurry! The Guardian, holding him, replied. You were smoking inside Windsor Castle? You know that's forbidden. Of course I know it's forbidden, Cornucope shouted. That man was about to have me murder the Queen. My goal was to smoke a cigar and hope somebody would smell the fumes. We smell the fumes, all right, the Guardian replied. And you'll be thrown out? As a consequence, never mind me, Cornucope said, struggling in vain to free himself of the Guardian's grip. He is the spy. There is a bomb inside Zarina's handbag. Check it now. That will be the proof that I am correct. Do it, sir, do it now, or feel the wrath of the British government. The Guardian did, as Cornucope requested. Whereupon the floral bomb and its control device was revealed. More guardians entered the room. What's going on here? Crafty bit of smoking and rusho spies. Take those two away. Not me, Cornucope replied. The burliest, ugliest guardian approached him. No, not you, he grunted. You and your... He glanced at Eustacia, then continued. A will be thrown out of the castle. He frowned. Shook his head. The king's honour has been besmirched by your smoking here. You know he can't stand. Of course I know, Cornucope yelled. I was here a few months ago at the king's very own anti-smoking ball. Ask him, ask the king now. The burly guardian turned away to address his colleagues. Take him and his accomplice to the forecourt. Use one of the Zeppelin Ben's horseless carriages there to drive them to the middle of Windsor Great Park. Then leave them to their fate. But sir, Cornucope gasped, it is night time. The Guardian grinned. I know, he replied. You've been listening to Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson.